Elisha the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Erexnes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called to them together and stationed them at their posts. This is the word of the Lord. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me once again? Father, we are grateful again that you've brought us here. No one's here to hear a man with a pulpit and a microphone, his voice. We need to hear your voice this morning. We pray that you would quiet our minds and still our hearts so that we can hear from you and be sensitive to how your Holy Spirit is working in us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Through my academic career, um, I'm not an academic, Academic, by any sense of the word, but through high school, college, grad school, I only ever failed one class, German three in my junior year. Now, 20 out of 24 of us failed the class. So there was some kind of teacher incompetence thing happening there. But uh, I, I took German three, and in New York, you have to take a regent's exam, and you have to pass the exam before you can graduate. And I had taken it as a junior, failed it, walked into German three again as a senior, and the teacher, Frau Hart, grabbed me by the shoulders and said, you changed an answer. I'm like, what are you talking about? You failed by one point. You changed an answer from correct to incorrect. That's why you're sitting through German 3 again. She's like, don't overthink things. (laughs) I am a chronic overthinker, and I have found my people. Uh, (laughs) This church is a church... We are chronic overthinkers, so I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Do not overthink the answer. We've been doing a series on the book of Nehemiah. Who is the main character in the book of Nehemiah? If you said Nehemiah, you were wrong. 
please read. No, the, the main character in the book of Nehemiah is God. Okay? Let, let, me, let me try it again. Who's the main character in the book of Joshua? Thank you. Yes. No matter what I ask, who is the main character? It's God. The Bible is about God. So as we bring this series on Nehemiah to a close, we need to think again, what has God been doing in the book of Nehemiah? What has God been doing? Nehemiah is certainly central to the story, but God is the main actor. What's he been doing? Well, first, God has been working in many hidden ways throughout the book of Nehemiah. If you read through the book of Nehemiah, it's 13 chapters, not long. So if you're coming in again to the tail end of the series, go and read the book of Nehemiah this afternoon. It's a great book. But there is no burning bush in the book. There's no pillar of cloud or, or pillar of fire leading the people. There's no angelic armies. What God is doing, he's doing in hidden ways. I I wanted to say he's working behind the scenes. It's not that. He's working behind the scenes, yes, but he's working on stage. He's working under the stage and over the stage and through all the actors. But the way he is working is hidden from our sight. Nehemiah, in the beginning of the book, says, God has put it in my heart to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Also in chapter 7, he says, God has put it in my heart to call an assembly and bring us here together to hear from the book of the law. God was working in Nehemiah's heart to do this great thing that he did to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 2, verse 18, he told the Jews that were living in Jerusalem, God's gracious hand had been upon him and given him success with the king. When he came to the king, Artaxerxes, and laid out before him his plan to go back to Jerusalem and build the walls again, King Artaxerxes gave him permission to do so because God's gracious hand was there and he was working In the king's heart. The parallel book to Nehemiah is Ezra. Actually in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are together as one composite book. Ezra picks up on this theme also. He says, God turned the heart. Referring to King Darius and King Cyrus, Persian kings. God turned their hearts to make them open to what Ezra and Nehemiah wanted to do. In chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah assured the people, God of heaven will give us success. And he did. Within a few short months, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. How did God give them success? Did he give them the strength of Samson? No. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord, that will be your strength. Did he give them success by defeating their enemies who were there with a host of angels or with plagues? No. He overcame that obstacle by frustrating their plans. 
working in hidden ways. In the end, even Israel's enemies perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Could they point to something and say, there was that miracle that happened? No, but God had been working in hidden ways and it was evident. I don't know about you, but I like to know things. If I have a heating and cooling guy come out to repair my furnace, I'm the annoying guy over his shoulder watching him do it. Mainly because the next time it breaks, I want to be able to do it myself. And partly because I just don't really trust anybody. So I want to see what you're doing. This summer, my son Jake dropped a, a dresser on his toe. And for the first time in 20 years, we had to take one of our kids to the emergency room for an injury. Um, that is a miracle, right? I got three boys in 20 years, one hospital visit. Uh, it was disgusting, okay? Blood does not gross me out, like at all. Don't mind it. But this is gross. I mean, it's foot, toenail. And I didn't want to watch what the ER doctor was doing. He got eight, ten stitches, and I won't go into all the gory details of other things, but there was things hanging that I just like, I... But I was over the shoulder of the doctor watching, not really wanting to watch, but watching because I, I wanted to know, and I'm like, what are you doing now? And you know, the doctor would be like, I'm doing what I get paid to do. Back off, you know. <laughs> but I want to know. I want to know what God is doing. God, show me. Partly because maybe I don't trust God enough. I, I want to see it. God, what are you doing? And God says, Dan, if you needed to see it, I'd show you. But you don't. You need to trust. The people in Jerusalem didn't see these big things that God was doing. But they had to trust that God was working. The second thing that you see in the book of Nehemiah as a repeated theme is that God is not just working in hidden ways. He is working on behalf of his people. Nehemiah 4 says that God is the God of heaven and earth, great and awesome, who will fight for us, his people. Nehemiah 9.32, our God the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. What he's doing, he's doing for us. He's doing out of a commitment to his covenant of love with us. And through the book of Nehemiah, what you see God doing is working to sanctify his people. Working to make them holy. One of the key components in understanding what holiness means is it means being set apart, being separate from. It definitely has a, a moral implication to it, but at its root, being holy means being set apart, 
So in the temple, you might have holy tongs. That doesn't mean they were morally upright, but they were set apart for common usage, set apart for usage in the Lord's service. God was here making his people again holy, separate, set apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. They were being called out of exile in Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and being called back to Jerusalem being called out from among the pagan nations with which they had kind of intermixed and being called back to be a separate people for God. Now, Bob has hammered this point home for the last two weeks. I need to reiterate it. This was not about ethnic or racial separation. That was not a part of Israel's identity. Israel, from its beginning, was a... Nation that welcomed in foreigners, assimilated them well into the community. Matter of fact, when you go back to the Exodus event, leaving Egypt, a mixed multitude of people came out with Israel, with the Hebrews, and joined in among them in the worship of Yahweh. Moses married a Midianite, not a Hebrew. Later, he married a Cushite from Cush was the area around Ethiopia. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, was a Hittite. Ruth, as Bob has mentioned, in the lineage of Messiah, was a Moabite. Rahab, a Canaanite. All throughout Israel's histories, there were strangers among them. Aliens who sojourned in the land of Israel and became a part of Israel taking part even in feasts like the Passover feast. This wasn't xenophobia. This was God's working in them to keep them pure in their worship of him. Not separating themselves from the nations around them, from their religion, from their idols, from their customs is what had sent them into exile. They had adopted the worship of the Baals and the Asherahs. And now God was calling them back and saying, be that separate, holy people that you were called to be. Be separate. Be holy. But again and again and again, The people of Israel keep falling into sin. They've come back from exile because they were in exile because they had not separated themselves. They come back from exile and they still don't separate themselves. And Nehemiah calls them out for that and calls them back to holiness. They sin, they're forgiven, they fall into sin again. And that was part of the passage that Adam read for us. Uh, Nehemiah 13, well, rewind. Nehemiah 10. Nehemiah has reestablished the temple, the Levites, the priests. Everything is administratively in order. And the people vow. The people vow. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. That's their promise. Then Nehemiah gets called back to Susa, the capital of Persia. He's gone for at least months, maybe years, 
And when he returns, he finds Tobiah as kind of, you know, he's squatting in the temple. He set up an apartment for himself. Tobiah was one of the enemies that had opposed the people. And the Levites aren't being cared for, and the priests aren't being cared for. And Nehemiah throws a hissy. We didn't read this whole passage, but it says he beats people. He throws some furniture. He pulls the hair, ooh, the hair out of their beards. He's mad. They've done it again. Now, when you advance in Israel's history, never again do the Israelites fall into those same sins. You go to Jesus' day, and the sins of Israel were not idolatry, right? They weren't worshiping Zeus and Athena. The sins of Israel were not desecrating the temple. The temple was off limits to Gentiles and was well maintained. It had become a den of robbers. The people had fallen into instead pride. They hadn't neglected the things of God, but they had become self-consciously proud that they had kept the law of God. The book of Nehemiah just reminds me, reminds us, that we ought to always be in the process of being sanctified. It does not end. Nehemiah's reforms were not the end of Israel's sins. In the 17th, or actually 16th century, a German theologian coined a phrase, it's almost become a slogan, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and always reforming. The church always has to keep coming back to the word and let the word has it have its way with us. Always be coming back to the word and saying, shape us, form us, reform us, revitalize us. It's true in our individual lives too. We don't reach a point where sanctification is done. We're always growing, always reforming, always coming to the word of God and saying, shape us, refine us. To do that, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because God wants us to be set apart from the world around us. We are not supposed to blend in. We are not supposed to march lockstep to the beat of our culture. Until we get comfortable being uncomfortable, we will be the impediment impediment in our own sanctification. We have to be comfortable being the peculiar people. A third thing that I see in the book of Nehemiah is that God uses ordinary means to accomplish his purposes. Uh, The people of God are always in need of reformation, so they're always in need of grace. And this grace comes to us most often through means. 
And you see that all through the book of Nehemiah. God works through very ordinary means to accomplish his purposes. I think we're probably all guilty of the clickbait stuff. You know, the clicking on the, here's the secret to weight loss. Or here's the secret to better abs. Here's the secret to being a millionaire by the time you're 30. And it's always the same, right? Here's the, here's the secret to losing weight. Lay off the ho-hos and ice cream. Get more sleep. Get off the couch and exercise. You're like, why did I click that? That's, I know that. That's ordinary. That's not revolutionary. The secret to being a millionaire. Don't spend money. You know, invest. Oh, okay. We want extraordinary. We want... That's not the book of Nehemiah. There's no miracles. There's no water from a rock. There's no manna from heaven. There's no parting of the Red Sea. Now, the building of a wall in a few months is a miraculous thing, but there's no individual miracles that happen there. It's God working through ordinary means. You need a wall built? Get a team. Build a wall. Divvy up the labor, get some shovels, throw some dirt, sweat a bunch. You need God to revive your spiritual life as a community? Go to prayer. Over and over and over again. In Nehemiah, you see him going to prayer. You see him with the people going to prayer. To God in prayer. In the word. Time and time again. They open the word. The book of the law of Moses. And say. Here's what it says. Let's do it. They're constantly coming and let it reform them. And they gather together in corporate worship. To be shaped together as the people of God. Now, those things are not ends in and of themselves. It's not as though those are tick marks and you get so many tick marks and now you're sanctified. No, those are channels through which God uses to pour his grace into our lives. You want to be sanctified. You want to be made more holy. Then go into those channels, step into them, and let the streams of God's grace Knock off the sin, erode the failure. Lose yourself in the stream of God's grace. But that is coming through very ordinary means in the book of Nehemiah and in our lives. One commentator said, Nehemiah lived in a day of ordinary miracles, just like we do. We see miracles all around us. Lives changed, lives redeemed. But we want miracles that are exciting. Ordinary miracles are ordinary. Not exciting, sometimes easy to miss. Open your eyes. 
to see what God is doing in ordinary ways. Be willing to sacrifice and work for the sanctification that God is calling you to. Put yourself in those channels. Uh, The fourth thing here, God is working through an appointed servant, Nehemiah. said Nehemiah is not the main character. He's not, but he's pretty important in the book. God is working through his appointed servant, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a sacrificial leader. And there's been books written on leadership from the book of Nehemiah. Chuck Swindoll wrote one. Andy Stanley wrote one. He's a great leader. He didn't balk at adversity. He he left a fairly cushy job in the capital city to go to the backwaters of Jerusalem to face opposition, to wrangle a herd of cats in the people of Jerusalem and get them to pull in the same direction and rebuild the wall. He unified the people. He worked for justice. He worked with wisdom. He led by example. When he noticed that the poor were not being cared for, he did it from his own coffers. He was a great leader. And in every one of those ways... Jesus is better. Even when you throw Ezra, the priest, into the mix, who cared for the spiritual heart of the people and kept bringing him back to the law and offered sacrifices, Jesus is better. See, as important as Nehemiah is in this book, as God's servant, he's pointing us to Jesus. God's anointed servant. We need leaders. And God has given us Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Some versions say the author and perfecter of your faith. The NIV says the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Pioneer, the leader, the one that goes out ahead of you and says, follow me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't balk at adversity. He took it on for us, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mission accomplished. He did it. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners like us, and do not grow weary and lose heart. The fifth and final thing that I see God doing in the book of Nehemiah is working towards the goal of restoration. Nehemiah did it in part. He restored the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra restored the temple. Both together restored the spiritual vitality of the people of God in Israel and Jerusalem. But there was still something missing. And the people of Israel, even at this time of great renewal, there was still a sense that we're still, in a way, in exile. Not completely, fully restored. We're still under the boot of the Persians. And then when the Persians expired, it was the Greeks. And then the Greeks expired, and it was the Romans. And just the sense that we're not fully, yet, completely restored. 
and Jesus is better. The restoration that he comes, the revitalization that he offers, isn't just in part or temporary. There have been some great renewal movements in the history of the church. Some great revival movements in evangelicalism. Great renewal movements in nations. But none of them touch a light a candle to what Jesus is offering. Not just seven steps to a better life, but a new life in him. Not just a more well-organized and administrated city, but an eternal city, a heavenly city. The renovation of Jerusalem is pointing us ahead to the future establishment of the heavenly Jerusalem that is our true home. God is still working. He is still moving on behalf of his people moving them towards his goal of full restoration. God is still working through his appointed servant, Jesus, still bringing about renewal, still using very ordinary means like prayer and the preaching of the word and the sacraments and the church to be channels of grace to change lives, performing ordinary miracles, He's still working in hidden ways. Say, Dan, well, what's he doing in me? I don't know the specifics of what he's doing in you. But I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So trust Even when you don't see what he's doing, trust that he's doing it. Trust and labor in that faith. Trust. Put yourself in the channels of his grace to be bathed in that amazing grace. Trust and be patient for what God is doing will be revealed at the right time. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so good to be able to come and proclaim a sure word that you are working, that you will see it to completion. There is no hemming, there is no hawing, there is no waffling. I'm confident in that because your word says it and your word stands forever. Give us the faith when our faith is thin, to trust and to be patient in what you're doing in each and every one of our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen.